Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So that was the sound of Eight Miles High, the Bird Signal single that was released for the second time on March 14th, 1966. There was an earlier version that was not recorded in the right studio, so it got nixed the last second. To me, that is the birth of the psychedelic era, which has had an absolutely profound effect on rock music and, and wider genres as well. The song features a drone inspired by Indian music. But much more importantly, it features what you just heard there, which is Roger or Jim McGuinn, Roger McGuinn, and then Jim McGuinn. I actually can't remember when he changed his name or which way he changed his name. Anyway, the, the lead singer of the birds imitating John Coltrane and introducing atonality to popular music as well as free jazz. And it was a single. It is the first time, as far as I'm aware, that pop rock music had broken away from the Western tonal structure. And McGuinn had, of course, come a very long way. He had picked up the 12-string guitar only uh, less than two years before, and now he was pretending to be John Coltrane on it. The B-side of this single also featured some Indian-inspired guitar playing. Before the song came out, a group called a folk group, later psychedelic folk group, called the Holy Moly, Holy Modal Rounders had already coined the term psychedelic music in a not very psychedelic folk song in 1964. The 13th Floor Elevators, uh, had described themselves as performing psychedelic music at the end of 1965, but their lyrics were always more psychedelic than their music. And also, they, hadn't, they didn't actually put out a record for another uh, eight months or something, 10 months, I think. Lastly, the Kinks had released a uh, drone-inspired single in the summer, but it was completely, totally... Um, I mentioned it when we were talking about Rubber Soul. There was a slight drone to the, the music, but otherwise it was a conventional song. So. I generally am a big believer that these landmark tracks that start new genres kind of need to be heard. And there are people who will go back in time and they will say, well, you know, the Holy Moly Rounders invented the term psychedelia or psychedelic on a record that no one heard in 1964. Or they'll say like, well, the 13th floor elevators were calling them psychedelic music, but they were a garage band in Texas. And no one, no one outside of Texas knew they existed. No one outside of Austin probably knew they existed. This song was played on the radio. And there's only one other real contender in terms of the first psychedelic song ever, and that is the Shapes of Things, or Shapes of Things, rather, by the Yardbirds, which was released a month earlier, or sorry, uh, three weeks earlier, on February 25th, 1966. Some people claim that song is the birth of it, not the bird song. That is a blues song, though, though it is inspired by a Dave Brubeck track, which is a jazz, uh, he was a jazz pianist. However, it's worth noting that John Coltrane was far crazier musician, far more innovative musician than Dave Brubeck at least in terms of breaking from traditional ideas. And also, if you listen to Shapes of Things, which you can go do, the only really remotely, quote-unquote, psychedelic aspect of the song is the guitar solo. The rest of it is just a British blues rock song. 
Now, the one reason you might think Shapes of Things is the first psychedelic song is because it was an actual hit. It hit number three in the UK and number 11 in the US, Eight Miles High. Did neither because people thought it was about drugs. And so it was banned shortly after being played on the radio. Why am I bringing all this up? Can I ask a question before you bring all this up? Yeah, absolutely. I've always wondered about why there was such the strong connection between psychedelia and India. So how did that like cross pollination happen? So it happened in two ways with the Beatles and, and, and the other British psychedelic bands, it happened through immigration. The birds are of course from Los Angeles. So it clearly didn't happen due to immigration there. What happened was they were listening to John Coltrane and they were listening to other jazz musicians and the jazz musicians had actually been listening to Indian music earlier and started taking inspiration from Indian music on their own. There's actually, there was a brief Indo-jazz subgenre that existed in the early 60s in which jazz musicians who were looking for ways to find new ways of uh, soloing had started using Indian scales because it let them, you know, solo in a different way. And, and you know, uh, Coltrane was writing tracks that were influenced by Indian scales and other, and there were, it wasn't just India. There's actually a bassist, I think his name is Ahmed Abdul Malik or something like that, who uh, actually had started making African-inspired jazz music in the early 60s. So that was going on in the jazz world in the States. And then in England, there was a wave of, there had been a wave of many ways of immigration and more and more uh, people from India were coming to the urban areas in England. And now they were starting to hear, you know, white British people were starting to hear Indian music coming out of stores and things. And probably there were festivals as well. I don't know. And that's how the Beatles and other British bands started becoming aware of Indian music there. But it's so two different things happened at roughly the same period. And it's only because the birds were listening to, uh, you know, the, the Yardbirds were British. So the, the Yardbirds were aware of Indian music because they were in London, whereas the birds themselves were just only aware of it because of, of John Coltrane. So I'm, why am I bringing this up? It's because it's worth noting the Beatles didn't invent psychedelia. You know, the birds are the best, as I tried to explain there, the birds are probably the best uh, choice for who, who put out the first psychedelic song. However, it's arguable that no British band, maybe no band in the world became more identified with psychedelia for a very brief period, I should point out, for about a year and a half than the Beatles did through various things that we're going to start talking about. And, and that's true of bands on both sides of the Atlantic, though obviously there was a lot of psychedelic music in the UK. The, London was the center of it in the US. There were uh, multiple centers. There was a center in New York. There was a center in LA. It was a lot more div- diverse and not really that psychedelic. There was Austin. There were, there were many different scenes. But popularly, you know, on the charts and in people's homes, the Beatles were, became the dominant psychedelic band, even though they did not, unlike folk rock, they didn't invent it. And it's worth noting also that many of the American bands that were quite psychedelic were, were psychedelic within certain, you know, the birds dabbled in psychedelia for a little while. They were also still playing folk rock and, and country at the same time, which is kind of weird to imagine and very soon abandoned it. But like other bands, like in San Francisco, where the most famous psychedelic scene is, those bands embraced aspects of what we call psychedelia, but were still also making like roots music at the same time. And some of the psychedelic scenes in the US. I don't even think really qualify. 
So the Beatles' next single was Paperback Writer, backed with a song called Rain. It came out May 30th, so about a month and a half after that Bird song. And, you know, as usual, it, it topped the charts. It, it was a, uh, the Paperback Writer is a McCartney song. Rain is a John Lennon song. The more famous, the song that people know is Paperback Writer. It is fairly, the only non-traditional thing about Paperback Writer, really, I guess, is, uh, well, there's a, there's a couple things, I guess, we could say. But the notable thing is that these, the innovations of Paperback Writer and Rain, with the exception of one part of Rain, were, were a little more subtle than what the birds were doing. I'm not trying to put any value judgment on there. It just wasn't as explicitly like, you know, you, you heard that you heard the beginning of eight miles high, like had you been a radio listener in, in March, 1966 and had not listened to jazz, that would have been really weird uh, to put it mildly to hear that music. So Paperback Writer, it's notable for a number of reasons. It featured the loudest bass of any Beatles song up until that time. The bass had been recorded using a loudspeaker, and it was mastered using a newer mastering technology that was now available in the UK. It was an attempt for uh, this British uh, recording act to, to make an American-sounding record, because as we talked about before, British recording technology was lagging behind US recording technology. So they were trying to come up with ways to imitate American sounds. It's, it's also notable for its lyrics being very non-traditional for the Beatles. It is just about someone trying to become successful as a novelist, but not a good novelist. Also, some of the lyrics are nursery rhymes. And basically, most of the song is actually just one chord, which is kind of weird. But it is, it is not what you would call psychedelic music. It is a little different than what they've been doing. It certainly doesn't qualify as folk rock the way, say, Nowhere Man does. Nowhere Man had just been released as a single in the U.S., couple months earlier but it is definitely as usual typical beatles innovation it's the b-side that's really of interest when we're talking about psychedelic music and it's a lot less subtle than paperback writer and much closer to sort of the kind of like shocking aggressively weird stuff that the birds had just put out on their most recent single it was recorded at a speeded up tempo and it was played back at a slower norm uh speed to make it sound off so everything sounds kind of lethargic it would become a common thing within psychedelic rock and pop music. And Lennon's vocal was recorded the other way around. It was recorded slower and then sped up to match the track. This is something that I don't know that had ever been done before, but it would become a regular thing the Beatles and their engineers would do, most famously on uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. But then there's the, uh, the most important part, which is that it is the first single and possibly certainly among the first ever popular music recordings, if not the first ever popular music recording, to feature what is called backmasking, which is the use of backwards tape. And now, of course, you don't need tape. You can just flip something around with your computer. But back then, they had to do it manually. So this isn't, I don't think, as big a deal as 8 Miles High is, but it's still pretty damn progressive. It's still really out there. So let's briefly hear
as far as I know, that is the first use of backwards tape on a main, like a popular song. Of course, it was on the B side, so it got a lot less attention than uh, than P- Paper Rack Writer did. But it was still released on a single, which is kind of crazy. Though, like I said, not as crazy as a guy trying to play John Coltrane on the guitar. So before we get to the uh, the next Beatles album, I just briefly wanted to talk about the summer of 1966. So the summer before the famous summer of love, because I think it's kind of the greatest burst, creative burst of popular music had seen um, by any measure up to that point. Um, there's certainly years since and seasons since that have had these accused explosions of stuff all in one brief period, but certainly prior to this, I'm not sure you could identify another uh, summer or, or season with this much stuff. It could be argued that what happened musically in the summer of 1966 set the template for the boundaries of rock music until punk music came around about uh, 11 years later. And certainly punk didn't change the influence of this music. It just democratized people's uh, access to making music. So obviously, Eight Miles High had sort of set off a you know, a clarion call or whatever, an alert that things were changing, music was changing. But you could argue that it wasn't really, this new sound wasn't really happening until people put out albums because, of course, the Beatles had created a world now in which albums were more important than singles. In March, the Fugs, a band that many of you probably never heard of, released what many people call the first underground rock album of all time, in that it was the first time a band without any traditional music establishment backing, like we're talking about marketing or anything like that, got an album out, uh, got it released. And and there's a distinction here between like independent and underground, in the sense that you know there have been people releasing music independently on their own uh, for years. Uh, John Fay, the folk guitarist, for example, have been doing it, but no one got their hands on them. They weren't distributed properly. The Fugs album did make it into people's uh, homes to some degree, much more so than, say, John Faye's music. In April, the Rolling Stones released Aftermath, which featured all original material, featured their own flirtations with weird instruments, including a sitar. Uh, it also featured Going Home, the longest rock song recorded to that point, 11 minutes long, um, so like three times as long as a single. And uh, it's generally regarded as the first Rolling Stones record that's actually people still care about all these years later who aren't like diehard Rolling Stones fans. It also, that month also saw the debut of a folk rock band called Love, who would later put out one of the great vaguely psychedelic albums from Los Angeles called Forever Changes. In May, uh, a band called The Small Faces debuted. And of course, the Beatles released Paperback Writer in Rain. But the real start of the month, what we might say the spiritual uh, beginning of this summer was when the Beach Boys, really Brian Wilson plus the Wrecking Crew, but the Beach Boys put out Pet Sounds. Uh, you could argue that Pet Sounds was the most revolutionary pop album released up to that point. There are people who claim it's a rock album, but I would say listen to that album and describe it as rock music after you listen to it. It would be weird. There are very few electric guitars on it, for example. It's much more in the mode of Phil Spector and actually made with musicians who worked for Phil Spector a lot of the time. It was it used the studio as uh, an instrument much more so than ever before. The, the vocal overdubs are kind of unparalleled in the history of music up until that point. It also recorded, uh, f- featured the first home-recorded sample in popular music that I'm aware of. Now, it's, there's also this whole Be- Beach Boys Beatles 
silliness. It was supposedly Wilson's response to the rubber soul. However, you know, it, it is not really remotely like rubber soul. And it's certainly not like the Beatles album that was about to come out soon. It is apparently the inspiration for Sgt. Pepper, which we're eventually going to get to, but I don't know how true that is. And actually, we have an episode where I'm going to talk about, it's called The Beatles Versus, and I'm going to discuss all these silly myths about various artists competing with the Beatles. So anyway, uh, it was, Pet Sounds was the most sophisticated pop statement recorded by anybody, basically, arguably not even Phil Spector or Bill Backrack. And uh, honestly, the only thing that, compares to it in terms of the sophistication of recording techniques is probably rubber soul which just come out in december it's uh i don't know i for me it it is i i'm much more of a rock music fan than a pop music fan i understand why people love pet sounds but to me it's not even like the best album of the summer but it certainly kicked things off in june bob dylan uh released the first ever rock and roll double album blonde on blonde which many people consider to be his best album now, double albums had existed before then in jazz and also weirdly in country. Johnny Cash had recorded a few double albums. This record showcased not only Dylan's seemingly always progressing songwriting, but he actually diversified his music more than ever, getting more and more into different forms of roots music. And then probably a week later, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention released arguably the most shocking rock debut in history up to this point, Freak Out, another double album, which mixed traditional rock and roll and doo-wop with modernism i.e classical music and aggressively biting social commentary and also some jazz just for the hell of it and arguably less people listen to that than listen to blonde on blonde or pet sounds or revolver which we'll get to but if you listen to that record and think about the fact that it's june 1966 especially the last three tracks will kind of melt your brain a little bit because it seems kind of impossible it's so out there in July, the Yardbirds finally released their album that got into psychedelia, but it did not include Shapes of Things because UK bands released their singles separately from albums. A few days later, the Birds released eight, their Eight Miles High album, Fifth Dimension. And so these are arguably the first two psychedelic rock record uh, albums that were released. The Fugs record had like one psychedelic-ish track. Freak Out is a wacky, wacky record is not psychedelic. The Dylan record is obviously not psychedelic. And Pet Sounds is, is cl- much closer to like Baroque pop than it is psychedelic music. But both of these records are sort of uh, stuck, but uh, caught between two things, the sort of new sounds that we're experimenting with and they're like older sounds in the case of birds, uh, we're talking about folk rock and in the case of the Yardbirds, we're talking about blues rock. A week after this, John Mayle released his seminal live Blues Breakers album with Eric Clapton. And also in July, the Velvet Underground released their first ever single, which nobody listened to. They had also already recorded their first album. It just would not come out for a long time afterwards for various label issues. And then in August, we have the thing that we are going to talk about in a minute, which is Revolver, the Beatles album. And shortly after that, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Blues Band from Chicago, released East West, an Indian influenced blues album, which was inspired also by John Coltrane, much like uh, the Birds record. So that was the summer, lots and lots of stuff. There was also uh, some stuff by the end of the year that I'll just mention that helped sort of move music forward. The Kinks put out a new album that saw them getting into the kind of 
reputation that Ray Davies would later have as a, is one of the great songwriters of his era, because initially they were much more of a loud rock band. And notably, The Who released an album called A Quick One featuring a quote-unquote mini-opera, a suite of songs called A Quick One While He's Away, which Pete Townsend later referred to as Tommy's Parents, referencing the rock opera he put out a few years later. And lastly, Jimi Hendrix introduced himself to the world in the fall. So it's the reason I talk about all this is it's hard to express to people who weren't alive the differences in music between December 1965 and December 1966. So you could listen to Hey Joe, which came out, Hendrix's version of Hey Joe, which came out sometime in, in late 66, and then go listen to What Goes On, the Beatles song we talked about that was included on Rubber Soul that was written and recorded for help. And you'd have some idea of the drastic, drastic changes in music. I would argue the Beatles had more to do with these changes than any other band. But of course, now, for the first time, they had real competition in terms of people trying to drastically change the sound of popular music. And that brings us to their album that they put out in August of 1966, which is, I'd say, arguably, certainly their best record to this point, and also arguably uh, one of their couple best albums that they put out in their seven and a half year career. It features 13 tracks, 14 tracks, 14 tracks, none of which are really the same to each other. And, and so we're going to try to go through it and explain how drastically <laughs> different it was, even from Rubber Soul in some ways, and also in terms of how it compared to the competition of the time in terms of quality. You can't really, as much as Blonde on Blonde, for example, had a fair amount of stylistic diversity for Dylan. And as much as Freak Out was, you know, really, really weird for a lot of people, and as much as Pet Sounds was really sophisticated, none of these records really had the stylistic diversity that Revolver did. I think you could say that Bob Dylan is a better songwriter than any of the Beatles. I think no one would dispute that. I think you could say uh, Frank Zappa was into, knew more about other weird stuff. I think you could say that at this point, Brian Wilson had a better command of the pop song. But the Beatles were very good at a number of different things at the same time. And maybe not as great as those other guys were at some, some things. But they were able to you know, cast a wider net, as it were. Okay. So I think to start, we should probably introduce the record with the song that introduced the record. One, two, three, four. <laughs> One, two. So that is Taxman. It is the loudest thing the Beatles had recorded to this point, featuring, if I do say so myself, some absolutely ferocious lead guitar playing from Paul McCartney. Weirdly, it's not George Harrison. It's, it's funny because uh, George Harrison's complaining about the government taxing him, and then very soon a bunch of prominent British musicians, including the Rolling Stones, would literally flee the United Kingdom in order to not pay taxes to the government because the tax rate was so high. And they probably had uh, you know, some bad management as well. I don't know who actually uh, played bass on it. And it's not really important, but it's just, it's notable that if you ever want to hear Paul McCartney play some really, really great lead guitar, you should check out that song. There's a few others, but, and then immediately the album shifts gears completely to Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. 
Nobody came, Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved, all alone. Uh, it's the first Beatles song devoid of any conventional rock instrumentation. Yesterday had an acoustic guitar on it. Is this it? has nothing. Yep, there's not a single rock instrument on it. It's a double string quartet and Paul McCartney's yeah. voice. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right on that. That never even clicked. I mean, it's a great song, but it never even clicked me that there's no rock on there. Oh, it is Paul McCartney with a few yeah. uh, sections yeah. where I believe uh, John Lennon and George Harrison sing backing vocals, and it is four violins. Two uh, violas, two cellos, or sorry, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And uh, that George Martin wrote the arrangement for. It was apparently inspired by uh, film composer Bernard Herrmann, who is most famous for Cycle. And uh, now, apparently, Paul McCartney may have hummed some of it, and, and George Martin went from there, but it's one of these places where you think probably George Martin should have got a co writing credit because it's most of the song, basically. <laughs> Oh, also, funnily enough, Ringo Starr apparently co-wrote some of the lyrics, which is a really weird thing, given that uh, he never did that. And of all the songs he would pick, probably not Eleanor Rigby. I think it's safe to say that this is one of the best Paul, uh, songs Paul McCartney had yet written. It became a bit of a standard. It was released as a single on the same day, a, a double A side with Yellow Submarine on the same day that this album came out. The next track is I'm Only Sleeping uh, by John Lennon. So the first three songs are by three different songwriters. It is a folk song a little bit, but it's a psychedelic folk song, and it features a very early backwards guitar solo played by Harrison that apparently took him five hours to perform. Because he would play it, they would play it backwards, and they'd decide not quite, and then he'd play it again. They would play it backwards <laughs> over and over and over again. It is apparently about a drug-induced stupor, and Lennon's voice, of course, is altered using tape effects just like it was on Rain. So even though the song is more conventional sounding, it is once again being manipulated in weird ways. And then there's the next track. So that is, of course, the sound of a sitar. And this time, instead of Indian music be, or rock music being inspired in by Indian music, it is Indian music being recorded by a British rock band. We talked briefly about the idea of Raga Rock and when we were talking about Rubber Soul, but this is beyond that because there's not really much in the way of rock music here anymore. It's basically just a British guy playing Indian music. There, you know, as I mentioned, when you asked about the source of, of Indian, uh, you know, where the Indian music was coming from, there were jazz musicians who were fooling around with Indian scales and stuff. But no one was really actually like George Harrison was the first prominent rock musician to take up the sitar, but he's also, as far as I know, the first one to actually try to write something solely for Indian instruments. Now, apparently, the sitar performance is actually not from George Harrison, he wasn't good enough. And apparently the whole thing was basically performed by Indian, uncredited Indian musicians, except for the tabla player, who for some reason was given a credit. 
I don't know why. So there's a tambura, there's a sitar, neither of which are credited. Everyone assumed George Harrison played the sitar. I have read that that's not true. I don't know for sure. And then tabla player got a credit. Who knows why? It is a piece of Indian music on our rock album. And uh, now, as is it a good piece of Indian music? Probably absolutely not. I don't know enough about Indian classical music. It's certainly in the form of a rock song, but it is just out there for a British group in the you know summer of 1966 because though the Indian influences were sneaking in, nobody was actually going this far yet. I remember this will probably date me somewhat, but I, like I remember when Brand Band 3000 did their Ravi Shankar mix back in the early aughts, and like I remember hearing that Ravi Shankar did a bunch of stuff with the Beatles, and that might also when I was into Alice Coltrane too. So no, she did some stuff with Ravi. Is this like this would be about the time where they started to collaborate with Ravi? Would he would would he have been one of the people on that album? So George Harrison was taking lessons from him. Oh, okay. I don't okay. know when that started, like what day that started, but I believe it started before Norwegian Wood. Yeah, because he was at the time, I believe he was living in uh, the UK. And certainly when he, uh, he actually, Ravi Shankar toured the US a little bit. And at one point, George Harrison was like with him on that tour, on one of the tours in the late 60s. Yeah, they knew, they knew each other. Um, yeah. And I think Ravi Shankar, Ravi Shankar actually had composed a, a few scores. Uh, uh, scores for some prominent Indian films in the late fifties and sixties. And I think that's probably how he of all people be got to the attention. Uh, he also moved to the West, but I think that's how he got to the attention of all these people. He was a film composer in addition to just playing Indian music, but anyway, yeah, they knew each other and they okay. had a bit just, of a yeah mentorship relationship. I, I just remember hearing something about a collaboration or whatever, whatever you want to call it between yeah. them. And I wasn't sure if that, I mean, I would assume it would have been this period where that would have started. Yeah. I just wasn't sure how um, explicit that partnership would have been. Yeah, I don't know who played. I just, while you were talking, I looked up the credits on Wikipedia, and there, according to Wikipedia, there's two credited sitars, George Harrison and somebody else, but they don't know who played the second one. Okay. I, I think it's unlikely. I think they probably just mixed the better one forward and probably dropped Harrison's out of the mix, right? Because it would be... Yeah. A, you know, Harrison was learning it, but he was not an expert. And there were certainly would have been a bunch of people in the UK at the time who were great sitar players because of immigration. So the next track after uh, Love You Too is Here, There, and Everywhere. Paul McCartney's attempt to sound like the Beach Boys. Though he recorded it before Pet Sounds came out, which I find amusing. It has actually been covered a whole bunch of times, which is interesting. It is very, very, very different than the Indian music that came before it, or arguably the song that comes after it either. It is a tasteful pop song, and that's basically all it is. But it's, uh, it you know doesn't have anything in common with the song before it or the song after. The next song, which was the other half of the AA side that they released at the same time, is Yellow Submarine, an incredibly popular novelty song. They made a movie out of it later, and that, that's a bit of a story we'll get to. And it also became a camp song. I, I think I certainly remember singing it at camp when I was a kid. Donovan, the, uh, the sort of Scottish next Dylan for a little while, actually apparently co-wrote the lyrics. 
it's notable though, even though I, I don't actually, as you might be able to tell from the way I'm talking about, it, I don't really like it. It's notable for a few things. First off, it is the first time the Beatles employed obvious, easy to spot sound effects. There are a ton of sound effects in this song. If you listen to Yellow Submarine, there are just an absolute ton of sound effects in it. It also features a whole bunch of people on it. They do gang vocals, which was not a thing back then. I know it's a very, it was like a really, really basic thing in indie rock, not when indie rock was still a thing, but it was not a thing in 1966. There are many famous people participating in, I believe, including some members of the Rolling Stones, as well as Donovan himself and some Beatles wives. It is also uh, just a really interesting recording. The instrumentation varies from verse to verse, which is a thing that they did not, that most people did not do at the time. And uh, it's a dense, dense recording that has a lot going on. If you listen on headphones in particular, it is. There's a lot going on, even though it's a really silly, stupid song. They spend a lot of time on it. So I guess that's something. The next track is a John Lennon song called She Said, She Said. Which is basically John Lennon assembling lyrics from snippets of dialogue he'd written down from uh, drug trips, basically from famous people doing drug trips. So it doesn't actually mean anything. It was, he was starting to get really experimental with his lyrical techniques. And this was a sort of cut and paste thing. It's, it's written in a mode, which is becoming increasingly common for both John Lennon and George Harrison songs. It uh, changes time signatures. Ringo Starr does a very good job on the drum drums on this particular track. And it is about as close to so-called psychedelic rock and the ro- emphasize on the rock as anything on the record. The next track is a Paul McCartney song, so they're, they're alternating here. And it's Good Day Sunshine. It's a little old-timey sounding. It is the first evidence of what become an obsession for Paul McCartney of recording these sort of old, old-timey tracks. This isn't very old-timey compared to the later stuff. But it's certainly nothing like the psychedelic rock before it and not really psychedelic at all, except for, I guess, the, the effects, the way the recording has been altered slightly. The next track is Anya Bird Can Sing, a, another John Lennon track, of course, because that's what they're doing. They're alternating. And this is another rock song that uh, features actually... Um, Originally, it was a 12-string, prominent 12-string guitar part, but uh, Harrison switched to a six-string. But basically, it is inspired by a a Baroque technique called the ritornello, uh, which comes from the concerto grosso form of the 17th century. So even though it just sounds like a rock song, it's once again evidence of the Beatles sort of thinking outside the box a little bit. And then we're back to Paul McCartney again with a ballad this time. For no one, one of the more uh, famous ballads he wrote for this particular record, he was actually trying to write a leader, uh, which is uh, a style of romantic song from Germany in the 19th century. And 
is an example of McCartney starting to turn into a one-man band. He would do this more and more frequently as they start getting along less and less well. If I'm not mistaken, he plays all the instruments but the drums. Yeah, he plays piano, bass, clavichord, and sings. And there's a drum part and there's a French horn part. And that's otherwise it's all McCartney, which would start to really irritate his bandmates as it would go on. You could argue that the French horn solo in it is one of the most French, uh, famous French horn solos in popular music, but I don't know that there's that many of them. So that would make sense. It is also an early use of the clavichord, an old, uh, I believe, Baroque instrument, which was not used very yes. often in pop music. Hardly ever, I would, th- I would think. Mm-hmm. So, again, switching back to Lennon, we get another Lennon song, a rock song about drugs called Dr. Robert. very explicitly uh, about drugs this time it's about buying drugs as opposed to using them and it may be the first song about explicitly about buying drugs that i'm aware of in popular music i don't know it is in the key the same key as for no one but apparently according to the musicologist alan pollock who i've relied on for a lot of this it actually makes you think it's in the key of what i want to tell you which is the next song on the record which is a weird trick that's kind of interesting, I guess, if that's true. I mean, my, I'm, I don't have good enough ears for that. I want to tell you is the third, the third George Harrison song on this record, which is a lot for him. Confessional song, unlike the first two, and, and generally speaking, George Harrison wrote mostly confessional songs, but not in terms of Taxman and, and Love You Too. It is more conventional sounding than the previous two songs, certainly than Love You Too, but the, the difference here is it's still aggressively weird. There is a, a discordant piano, a hammering away in the background, and there are some very subtle Indian influences, including in the backing vocals. And then because because this is what they're doing now. The next track is Paul McCartney's attempt at writing a stack soul song, because why not? It's got to get you into my life. Another one of the big songs from this record. I was alone. I took a ride. I didn't know what I would find. It is also notably for the first time, the Beatles really started doing strange things with recording orchestra instruments non-traditionally. So in this case, they put the mics really, really close to the, uh, the mouths of the horns because they were trying to figure out how to get the stacks horn sound. They didn't know, of course. They'd kn- I don't think they'd yet been to stacks, or if they had been. No, they've been to Muscle Shoals, I think, but I'm not sure they've been to stacks. And, and so as with, uh, as with some other instances, they were trying to get the sounds of American records without knowing how to do it. So they were fooling around, like with Paperback Writer and the Bass. And I think it's also notably a very good vocal performance by him, but it's just also notable that they have this like soul song buried in here, as was their want on this record. They just sort of tried various different things. And that brings us to the most important track on the record, the one that 
I think a lot of people who have never listened to Rubber Soul but are interested in the history of music know, on the other hand, if you're not a big Beatles fan, you probably have never heard it or heard of it because it was not a single. But, you know, it, 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 it's weird. That is Tomorrow Never Knows. Arguably, unless you were looking at Indian music as being out there, the most out there track on this record, there's really nothing on the album to prepare you for a song that kind of sounds like 90s electronica a little bit. But certainly, I feel like the drums sound like the Chemical Brothers to me, or I guess the Chemical Brothers sound like Tomorrow Never Knows to me. John Lennon's vocal was run through a speaker like George Harrison's guitar had been on some songs on Help. They used Flang, possibly for the first time. There's a drone. It's in a mode. And there are numerous, numerous tape effects. Like uh, various tape being sped up, slowed down, flipped around. All sorts of stuff. John Lennon's lyrics were inspired by Timothy Leary's manual, uh, reading manual companion, I guess, to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And also from LSD trips. Though John Lennon was clearly the most indebted to Carl uh, Stockhausen and Caroline Stockhausen, and and Alan Pollock, the musicologist, notes an Elliot Carter influence on the ending. Paul McCartney was actually the most involved in creating the heavy music concrete influence from Stockhausen. He was involved in the tape manipulation more than anybody, I believe, even though John Lennon wrote the song. The Beatles created the tape loops themselves, and then George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, assembled about half of them to create the song. When Phil Lesh, bassist of the Grateful Dead, who had yet to go in the studio, but they were already making wacky music live when he, when he heard it, he is reported to have said, finally, someone else is making music like we are. Of course, the Grateful Dead hadn't recorded yet. I'm not sure there was anything else like pop- in popular music like this until Frank Zappa was released absolutely free the next summer. Though there is some stuff on Freak Out that you could say is just as radical. Of course, nobody listened to Freak Out in comparison. So I think you could argue that there are close to 14 genres on Revolver, which is saying something. The opening track is, is, is loud, and it's sort of hard rock, but it's also sort of hard R&B. The, uh, the next song is a pop song that is aggressively influenced by film music. The next song is a psychedelic folk song. Then we have Indian music. Then we have a straight-up Beach Boys-type pop song. Then we have a novelty song. Then out-and-out psychedelic rock song. A more traditional pop song follows, followed by a hard rock song that is influenced by Baroque music, which is hard to describe. Then a song that is an attempt at writing leader from the 19th century. Then just a normal rock song again, an Indian-influenced pop song a Southern soul song and something that defies categorization. So I guess maybe a little bit fewer than 14, but still a whole bunch. The Beatles used the latest recording techniques and improvised new ones. And they did this more than on any previous record that they had done and, and more than anybody else had done. You know, you could go back and listen to Pet Sounds and Freak Out and there's a little bit of recording information on Pet Sounds, relatively speaking. And there's probably a bunch on, on Freak Out, but I'm not sure there's as much aggressively sort of in your faces on this one. It's also noted that 
uh, notable that the recording process for this was so hard that the Beatles stopped touring. Their, their last show was in the spring of 1966, and uh, they would never tour again, although they would play a few live shows, spoiler alert. And uh, they actually took uh, their first huge, or sorry, their second big vacation. George Harrison would go to India, uh, go to India. John Lennon starred in a movie. Um, Ringo Starr I took some well-needed time off, and Paul McCartney, quote-unquote, wrote the first Beatles solo album. And I say, quote-unquote, because he wrote a song, and George Martin turned it into a score for a movie, and Paul McCartney had nothing to do with that score. And so it would be six months before they put out any new music. And in the meantime, that stuff I mentioned about The Who and The Kinks and Jimi Hendrix would happen. But basically, that is the what I think is safe to say, maybe not the most innovative album, pop music album ever made at the point, but certainly one of them and the one that was the most successful. And I'm thinking specifically of Freak Out because Freak Out just really, I don't know who listened to Freak Out, but really they didn't do it. If this, this is an album that top charts in multiple countries and Freak Out, of course, did not. So yeah, we are now firmly in the psychedelic era. Do you have any further questions? No, I think, and I mean, I think Revolver's always been a really good album. I liked it a lot when I started listening to it way back in the day. This is more the, I think, the area of the Beatles that I get excited about. But yeah, it's definitely going to be a fun ride. And it makes me think, I remember what you're like when you're talking about the, um, you know, that some random band in Texas. Oh, the 13th floor elevators, yeah. Yeah, like, and there's all these random things that maybe, you know, they were doing this thing, but they weren't necessarily known. I was thinking about like a lot of the protopunk bands that I've listened to that are from probably about this time. Like the Monks? No, um, like Los Psychos. Oh, I don't know them. Uh, they're Peruvian? Anyway, yeah, like, it's... <clears throat> I mean, they're they're phenomenal. You'd probably really like them. But, yeah, it, it's just one of those things that you... Uh, that just kind of click in your brain, like, oh, yeah, I guess, because if, if you don't necessarily have the reach, yeah, it's kind of tough to say the same kind of... like Or say the whatevers. Yeah, so Los Los Psycho's first single came out in looks like uh, early '65, but like it came out in Peru in early '65. Yeah, like yeah. it came out like, and I didn't find out about these guys probably until oh boy, like maybe five years ago. Yeah, I think in one of my rabbit holes went down, but phenomenal band to listen to, and like it's one of those things where people who know who know who know have definitely yeah. listened to it. And yeah, but it's just, you, if you don't get that same level of um, exposure, yeah, exposure. Yeah. So it's, it, it's definitely something to think about. And the more, like the more you build your case as to the Beatles influence, the more I think you actually have built a, a better case for it. You know, like at the start of this project, I was like, uh, yeah, whatever the Beatles, they're good, but they're not that good. But the more that you think about it, it's kind of like, yeah, no, they, they actually were that, that influential. I mean, because you don't think you're looking back in today's with with modern eyes of yeah. no one writes in one genre, everyone matches everything together. It's hard to put your your mind in a frame set where that just that didn't happen. And large this probably Absolutely. do to what the Beatles did. I mean, I think one of the things that is so impressive to me when I think about their career in this way is how cumulative it just builds like you know, we were talking in one of the previous episodes about like, 
if they'd sort of broken up in the early 60s, they already would have had a pretty big influence on music. Yeah. And people don't really like, and, and it's just like, and then another thing they did, and then there's another thing they did, and then there's another thing they did, and it just adds up after a while. You're like, really? Still? You know, that, that happened almost all the way until they broke up. And, you know, it was like, like I said, with psychedelia, they didn't invent it. They weren't first in this case, but immediately, almost immediately after it happened, they were the biggest psychedelic band in the world. This, this album came out six months after Eight Miles High. And, and if you listen to Fifth Dimension, the Birds record that came out a month before, it's like, it's got some psychedelic music on it. And then it's got like, you know, folk songs, which is what the Birds have been doing already. And, you know, they just immediately, the Beatles were like, hey, new stuff, let's do it. Like, really, really quickly. The turnaround is kind of incredible to me. And, uh, and I think it's just like, it's sort of, I mean, I've, I've, you know, sort of gone through this story many times, but it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's incredible to me, the amount of innovation. It, while they were hugely popular, that's the other thing, right? Mm-hmm. Is like this record and the singles that came out of it all went to number one. It's not like they were like, it's not like Frank Zappa where like some people are like, who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of, or, or like, na- you know, there are many people, many, many, many people could not name a single Frank Zappa song or can name one. And it's either Hanging don't eat bondage. Great song. Yeah. Or like don't eat the yellow snow or, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Valley girl. Right. And like, that's it. And, and the Valley girls from the eighties, but like, yeah, they just, they were doing these things while they were the most popular band in the world, which also sort of blows my mind a little bit. All right. I think that's it for this one. Cause okay. there's a lot to talk about with regard to Sergeant Pepper. So we'll, yeah. we'll leave that for the next episode because uh, yeah, there will be a lot to talk about there. So, all right.